All right, guys, great to be with you. Just a couple testimonies of God's grace as I just reflect here. Um, number one, just testimony to God's grace and bringing me to faith. I'm just uh, overwhelmed by that simple fact. And then to be able to minister the word is, is, a, is a double testimony of God's grace. Um, and then as you're looking at a commentary, some of you may not know that I had a reading problem growing up. And um, I actually failed the reading part of, of the ACT. Uh, I was a college baseball player and I was getting tutored in reading because I couldn't retain anything. I couldn't, I couldn't remember what I read. And uh, I got saved as a sophomore and uh, started reading because uh, everybody said, you got to read the Bible. And I was like, do you have one with pictures? Because um, like, I, don't, I don't like reading. And, uh, and to just the simple fact that I have a book out is a testimony uh, to the grace of God because he, he changed every, every, every bit of my life, including my ability to remember things. And so uh, that's testimony number one to God's grace. Um, I'm just really overwhelmed by all that, uh, all that he's done in my life. Um, and with that said, testimony to God's grace in my life through Jim Shaddix. Many of you know that was my mentor, and I was just being interviewed by a student, and I said that far and away the most shaping influence on my life um, was through Jim Shaddix, who taught me to say, if you're going to say, thus says the Lord, you better know what the Lord says. And, and he taught me how to study the Bible. He taught me how to put a sermon together. Those are the things I do every single week. Um, and I've had other shaping influences since those early days as a seminary student, but uh, Shaddix was the one who put me on a trajectory that, uh, by God's grace, I'm still on. And so it's a joy to, to be able to do this sort of thing, uh, and I recognize uh, where I come from. And um, uh, I sat at his feet and learned, and uh, I'm still learning. And that's the great thing about being a Christian, is that we never stop being a disciple. Uh, we never grow beyond needing to be discipled. Uh, we're, we're always learners. And so uh, I'm here today hopefully to encourage you, to equip you, and also to learn uh, and, be, and be encouraged uh, myself. Here's what I want to do, three parts. Uh, I want to, to give you a bit of a refresher on exposition. I didn't know exactly what my audience was going to be, so I'm assuming most of you have had basic exposition stuff. If you haven't, that's great too. Welcome, um, because I'm going to hit just some basics to refresh you. Um, secondly, we'll do a bit of a, of a reflection on Acts 17, the sermon that was in chapel, and uh, I can kind of talk through uh, the things I did there that I'm promoting here uh, in the refresher segment. So refresher, reflection, and then recommendations. So on recommendation on how to preach Acts. So you've got notes there in front of you. Uh, I'll try to hit all the blanks. Uh, it's a lot of blanks, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, let's start off with uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, just to put uh, the text, put a text in front of us. When we think about, and by the way, uh, maybe Pete, can you bring me my water up here? Um, be great. And I don't know why you're in the back anyway. He's my big amen -er. Uh Yeah. Pete left me for another church. Uh, he used to sit in the front row and, and, and say amen. Even people on the podcast would hear Pete talk. And uh, you don't think I can catch that, do you? Thanks, bro. Um, <clears throat> when you talk about uh, homiletics, that's the, the uh, classical term for preaching, homiletics. Homiletics means the science and art of preaching. Um, and oftentimes, one of the, the weaknesses in homiletics is the failure to address the heart. Uh, the failure to, to talk about prayer and the work of the Spirit. 
so one of the things that you find emphasized here at Southeastern, you find it, uh, I know, with, with Jim's books, and uh, you, you see it in my preaching book, Christ-Centered Expositor, is that we don't want to assume these things, that we actually want to make a big deal about uh, the preacher as well as the sermon he's preaching, right? We want to we make a big deal about uh, the heart. So my, my preaching book is divided. Half of it is on the heart of the expositor, and the second half is on the message of the expositor. And that's because these two are inextricably linked. Our, our life and our ministry are wed together. I like to say that all of life is sermon preparation. Um, it's not just when I'm in front of the computer, but, but my life impacts my preaching. Um, and so when it comes to homiletics, we need not just a Christ-centered homiletic, we need a Christ-centered heart. Um, because you can actually be really good at preaching a Christ-centered sermon and be far from God. Um, it shouldn't be the case. But you can artistically learn how to do this sort of thing and be a magician at it, but have a heart that's far from God. And so um, what, what I'll share with you on this refresher is, is that. It's, it's the mingling of both content and life that's so critical as we talk about this. And one of the passages I like to, to show that is in uh, this opening chapter in Thessalonians. Three of the um, classical divisions in public speaking throughout the years have been ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos being the credibility of the speaker, uh, uh, the person's life. Pathos being the, the passion uh, of the speaker. And, and logos, the content of the speaker. Now, what I love about this little text, though Paul is not necessarily intending to give us those Aristotelian you know, categories, he, he talks about it nonetheless. Notice here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, He's talking about after they planted the church in, uh, in the book of Acts. We read about it in chapter 17. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word. So there's the logos. That's the content. So what we're preaching is the gospel. We always need to remember that's what makes our preaching unique. It's the gospel. Other religions have preachers. Other religions have missionaries. What makes our preaching and our missionaries different is what we preach. So we've got, we have to have the right logos. But notice, also, it came also, he says, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction, pathos. So he wasn't a dry communicator. He wasn't, he wasn't detached from the gospel personally. He's bringing it. You can't just fake that. Like he's, This is something that happens in the heart. Full conviction, power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice the ethos in the next sentence. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Ethos, that is the credibility of the speaker. That credibility is attained more outside the pulpit than inside the pulpit. Now, when you put those three together, that is a powerful combination. Ethos, the character of the speaker. Pathos, the passion of the speaker. And logos, the content of the speaker. When you put all that together, then you've got, you've got a Pauline preacher. Um, so that's sort of what I want us to, to uh, just have in our minds as we talk about Heart and message, okay? You see that pattern throughout the book of Acts, compelling lives, all through the book of Acts. Lives that were willing to suffer for the sake of his name. You see passion just exude from these early Christians in Acts. And you see the gospel, the logos. Now, let's have a little refresher. What is exposition? question we have under that one is, what makes a great preacher? This is not intended to be an exhaustive list, but just some things to, to, uh, 
to throw your way. Number one, a love for the word of Christ and the Christ of the word. So we'll start here, a love for the word of Christ and the Christ of the word. Good preaching is an overflow. We commend, as Piper says, what we cherish. And you know this, right? That is, you, love a, you, love what, you talk about that which you love, don't you? If you watch a good Netflix show, you're commending it to someone. If you eat at a good restaurant, you tell someone about it. And good preaching is first enjoying it yourself and then commending it to other people. It's that uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know if you guys like to cook. I love to cook. And I don't do it a whole lot because I guess I don't love it that much. But um, uh, on, <laughs> I guess I kind of like it. Uh, on Saturdays when I have time, I like to cook when I'm home. Uh, but I, I love to get my guacamole perfect uh, because I, I do probably make the best guacamole in Raleigh. Um, all glory to God. But... Um, <laughs> When, you, when you're getting all those ingredients and you've got your cilantro and you've got your lime and you've got citrus, a lot of people forget citrus. You need to put citrus on your guac. Uh, and you get the right amount of kosher salt on there. And, and, and then I, I take, you got to get the right kind of chips too. You get the right kind of chips and you taste it and it's not right and you work on it some more and it's perfect. Then, you've gotta, then you go to somebody and you say, yo, you've got to try this. Like you want to commend it because you're enjoying it. And good preaching is like that. It's like, I don't know what you've been tasting this week, but you've got to taste this. That's, a, that's good preaching. Now, you can preach sometimes with a heart that's really not enjoying it because of whatever reason. But good preaching is exulting over what you're commending, enjoying it yourself. That's the goal. That's what we want to do. Now, as I give you the, the, this list of nine, just some examples along the way in the book of Acts to illustrate these kinds of principles. It's very obvious in the book of Acts that they are commending what they're cherishing. That they, they are uh, reveling in the glories of Jesus. Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We are witnesses of these things. Um, Acts three twenty two to 26, which is a, is a very important uh, text for, I think, understanding the Old Testament and some of the, the major themes that point us to Christ. Uh, Peter there in that sermon quotes Moses talking about the prophet to come. He says of uh, the prophets in chapter 324, of all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, they proclaim these days. So all of the prophets. Um, And then he quotes, he he refers to Abraham and the covenant that's made there in Genesis. Um, It's a love for the word of Christ and the Christ of the word. That scripture is telling this story, this sweeping grand narrative the prophets are foretelling it, um, and we're waiting on him. He has arrived, and now the apostles, chapter 4, they can't help but to speak the things they've, they've seen and heard. That You can't shut them up because it's an overflow. Acts 7, Stephen narrates the Old Testament, ends in his martyrdom. Philip takes the Isaiah scroll and leads the eunuch to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 10, you have Peter uh, and the Cornelius encounter. At the end of it, what's he do? He walks through the Old Testament, narrates it, uh, and says that Jesus commanded us to preach and proclaim and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So you see this, this love for the word of Christ, this message in the Bible culminating in the work of the Messiah and a love for him. You see it played out throughout Paul's preaching, 
first recorded sermon in the Apostle Paul's ministry that Luke gives us is there in chapter 13 in Antioch, Pisidia. And there also Paul seamlessly goes from Old Testament individuals to the Messiah. Uh, you see it played out throughout uh, the, the, uh, the early missionary journeys as Paul is, is doing that sort of thing in the synagogue, as I mentioned in my sermon. And then at the very end of the book of Acts, uh, what, what do you find Paul doing? Proclaiming. Proclaiming this story. I mean, it's a whole sweep, the whole book of Acts. In fact, you've got some 20 sermons at least uh, in the book of Acts, speeches. Uh, a good chunk of the book of Acts, 25, 30% is just sermons or speeches or parts of speeches. Um, and so that's the point. Um, good preaching is this overflow, a love for the word of Christ and the Christ of the word. So to do that, we can't have Tupac's ethic, all eyes on me. Right, we, we need the reverse Tupac method in, in preaching, which is all eyes on Jesus. Our, our eyes are on him as we see him in the word. We want to put people's eyes on him as we preach. That's probably the only reference to Tupac you'll ever hear in a sermon uh, context like this. So, and I'm being really reserved. You guys who know me know that. I'm, I know where I'm at here. So I've got the jacket on and I'm trying to look polished. So... Um, <laughs> I, I, one of the things that Keller says that I love, he says, let the word drive you to the pulpit, not the pulpit drive you to the word. You know, like don't, don't just make uh, the Bible the thing you go to to prepare a sermon, but, but more you have to preach because of what you're seeing in the Bible. Um, I, we have to guard against what I call being the sermonator, which is the ability to mechanically churn out a sermon, but to have a heart detached from it. Because you can get really good at this, guys. You can, I can throw some of you guys a text. I know. I can do it. And in two hours, you got a sermon. Some of you do that for every Sunday morning sermon. Uh, we need to talk about that, though. It's, not, it's poor responsibility, isn't it? Uh, but that's what I'm talking about. It, it, you, you don't, it, we're not just talking about giving content. Like, we're not machines. We're not just content producers. That's, that's dehumanizing, actually. We are people, and we have to feast on that which we're feeding people with. And so I know you know that, but I just wanted to start there. Now, you may be wondering how we're ever going to get through these outlines. I don't know. Uh, number two, a love for people. A love for people. So we talk, start with Jesus. We start with his word. And I start with people. That also is played out in a variety of texts. Uh, if, you, if we were looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about loving them like a, a, a mother loves children. And so, again, we're not just content producers. But we're shepherds, and so we want to love people. I love how Paul, who started the church in Philippi in Acts 16, writes later to the Philippian church that you are my joy and my crown, whom I love and long for, he says. Um, Brian Chappell, the great uh, homiletician, says in his early preaching, he used to write at the top of his notes, love the people. Just as a reminder that I'm not just trying to get through my material, I'm trying to get through to people. I'm preaching to people. We don't just preach, right? We preach to people. And we're shepherding people from the pulpit. All right. Um, number three, gifts. What makes a great preacher? Obviously, it's God who, in his sovereignty, has chosen to gift people. Uh, this may not be your primary gifting, and you need to be okay with that. Because it's not the only gift, is it? I love the example of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. When they're uh, building the wall, um, you know, uh, Nehemiah is the administrator. But when it's Bible time, Nehemiah steps aside and he lets Ezra do his thing. 
You've got to have them both. And, and we need all the gifts uh, in, in the New Testament. We need, but, but if you have a, a preaching gift, a teaching gift, then, then we're called to use it, as 1 Peter 5 says, in the strength that God supplies. Um, and you're not responsible to live up to the gifting of another person. Like You're responsible to be faithful with what God has given you. And in many ways, that's liberating. Uh, number four, experience. Paul says, let them see your progress to, uh, to Timothy. That's, that's the good thing about your preaching right now. It can change. You can change it. <laughs> While you're alive, you can make changes. <laughs> Some of us don't have much longer, but right now we can improve. So you, you, need, you need reps. You need, uh, you need experience in life. I think I'm a way better preacher now than when I first started because I've lived longer. And I've seen more suffering. And I'm able to sympathize, I feel like, better with people than I did before. Um, so I would just say you need experience in actually preaching and experience in actually living. Um, and so if you're young, you've got a long way to go and a lot to learn, and praise God. Um, it's a great journey. I don't know where any of my first sermons were at my first church, and I'm glad because I wouldn't use them. Uh, they weren't heretical, but I, don't think, but that, that I, still, I still don't think I would use them. Um, First time I ever met John Piper, I was telling him I was writing my dissertation on him. And uh, I remember him saying to me, please take recent sermons. <laughs> I, was, I was encouraged by that. Really encouraged by that, uh, that uh, anybody can improve. Dave Platt's first sermon, by the way, one of his first ones as a youth guy, he was preaching on Laodicea. And if you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And David had a big mouth full of water. Nobody knew it. And he started his sermon by spitting it on like the, the, the front row. And was like, that's what God thinks of some of you. Um, <laughs> that's radical, right? Very radical. <laughs> you guys know Dave wrote radical. I wrote ordinary. I have a much lower bar. Just, <laughs> I'm just trying to aspire to that. So I don't think David would do that anymore. That was my point. He's, he's grown some. He's, he's learned. He's a decent preacher now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, number five, a mentor. A mentor. Preaching is one of these things. It's kind of like, um, you know, you're in a trade school in some ways in seminary. It's, you're, it's a very specific task, and you need kind of some hands-on, you know, mentorship to be able to be a good welder and, and to be a good preacher. It's, it's, some of it's just very practical, of people looking at your notes, of, you know, being with you, asking you questions. Um, so that's, that's very important. Number six, along with that, Models, models. Uh, Dr. Aiken has a line that he uses a lot. Great preachers listen to great preachers. And I find that to be true, though I'm sure there's some guys who don't listen to a lot of preaching. I listen to a ton of preaching, though. Um, I probably listen to close to 10 sermons a week on my commute, which is about 20 minutes every day I'm listening. Sometimes when I work out, depends on what, how much weight I'm trying to lift, what I'm listening to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, all the time. Uh, and different people. I listen to guys for different reasons. Um, Tabidi is one of my favorite preachers. I love his tenderness, his warmth, in addition to his exegesis. H.B. Charles um, Keller for his engagement of unbelievers. So much to learn from different individuals that the Lord gives us. Number seven, uh, holiness and prayer. Again, this kind of goes with the top one, but just... Trying to, again, emphasize the, the heart. Um, because our lives are, are connected. 
I think it's uh, Larry Trotter at uh, North Wake first said this to me, that um, you minister best not out of gifting or effort, but out of health and you, out of a healthy soul. Um, and so you can't separate life and doctrine. You need holiness. You need prayer. I find that when I'm not praying, one, or three, one of three things is present in my heart. Self-sufficiency, all of which are to be repented of. Self-satisfaction or self-righteousness. Self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-righteous preachers don't pray. When you look in the book of Acts, they're desperate, aren't they? I'll say more about prayer in a minute in the book of Acts. Number eight, instruction. So I think good preaching uh, requires you to have some basic instruction. You don't have to necessarily have a seminary degree, but you need some basic instructions on homiletics and how to exegete passages. I would have not have known a lot of things had I not been taught at a formal level some of the things that I do every week now. Number nine, the sovereign spirit of God. That's my category for God just does stuff sometimes. <laughs> what makes a great preacher? You listen to some guys, how does anybody get saved in that preaching and God uses them? There, there's a lot of mystery in preaching. A lot of mystery. So much in preaching that's going on that we can't teach in homiletics. There's just, you just have to have a category for that. What is expository preaching? It's the next section there. I don't want to go into too much on, on this and give you a gazillion definitions, but just a few, uh, uh, maybe an analogy is, is the best thing. I just call it word-driven, word-saturated preaching. That's kind of just baseline definition. It, it's the, the text is driving the sermon, not your opinions, not your ideas, but the text is driving it. it the, the, the sermon's saturated in the Bible. My favorite illustration was given by Dr. Shaddix um, when I was a student. He calls it, um, he says there are three ways you can use the text, and he compares it to a swimming pool. Uh, so you can use the text as a diving board where you read a, a verse never to return again. You've heard those sermons before probably. That's like the diving board sermon. Or you could use the text as the furniture around the pool where you occasionally revisit it, have a look at it. Or you can use the text as the pool itself where you're swimming around in it. And that's what exposition is. It's taking listeners for a swim in the text. Taking the listeners for a swim in the text. So that after they, they leave your sermon, they're refreshed. They've been in the Word. They've been for a swim. I have some longer definitions there uh, explaining what God has said in His Word. So we're re-repeating things. We're not, we're not giving new revelation. We're doing, as Carson says, re-revelation. We're just showing what God has already revealed. We're explaining what God has said in his word and declaring what God has done in his son, which is Christ-centered exposition. And then, a step further, applying this message to the hearts of people. So those are my, my definitions. Next blank in your notes, ranting is not preaching. Ranting. You guys know what ranting is, right? Now, I can do ranting in a lecture, but I can't rant in preaching. Uh, ranting, there's kind of old school ranting and new school ranting, right? There's old school ranting where preaching used to be a lot more oratorical and, and flowery, po even poetic. And people would often take a, t a phrase out of the Bible and develop a whole sermon around that phrase. Herschel York calls that the nifty-lifty approach to, uh, to preaching. So it's just a lifting of a phrase, and, and you have a sermon. Often, again, it was good theology, and it was very poetic. Spurgeon did a bit of that, by the way. I don't want lightning to hit me, but he wasn't always the best expositor. Um, and that's my hero. I say that with deep affection. Um, but new school ranting well, uh, is this sort of thing that you saw a lot of Acts 29 guys do uh, early on. Uh, one, 
well, I won't, are we being recorded? We, okay. Um, where at one time, the, um, <laughs> let me dial it back a little bit. Uh, at one time, biblical manhood was the thing. And, and guys felt like they had to talk about that in every sermon. And so anytime you'd find a man in the Bible, it became a sermon on biblical manhood. So I remember one I was listening to on John the Baptist. And he's kind of talking about John the Baptist. And then for 25 minutes, it seemed 30, it's a whole rant about manhood. When the text is not about manhood. Like John the Baptist was a man. <laughs> he, he was hairy. But <laughs> it's not about man. Like you need your application has to be tied to the text. And, and so that was a version of ranting. And the reason I bring this up is that's exactly what prosperity preachers do. They're, they're, they're doing the nifty lifty. They have a phrase, but it's never in a context. It's certainly never in whole Bible context, right? And so um, that methodology, uh, you can use it. The reason we don't critique the guys I just mentioned is because usually their theology is good, but they're using the same method. And what, what ranting does is actually feeds the flesh of people at times. And that's why people like prosperity preaching. It's, it feeds the flesh. Who doesn't want health, wealth, and prosperity, Right? Wouldn't you rather have suffering? No. But you've got to preach the Bible. And we're going to suffer a lot uh, until we die. So all that to say, just because people applaud you doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Just because you bring in a crowd doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Um, you can build a crowd on all sorts of methods. But you can't build a church. God's word builds his church. Uh, a big personality can build a crowd, but only God's word creates God's people. So we have a higher responsibility when it comes to preaching. What we have a shortage of today is Christ-exalting expositors. And I just want to see millions of them, faithful, people-loving, Christ-centered expositors. Christ-centered exposition, next blank, involves using a magnifying glass and a wide-angle lens, to quote Brian Chappell whom I had the privilege of seeing yesterday, a man who's taught me much. A magnifying glass, first blank, wide-angle lens, second blank. That is, you're looking at your text in its details, magnifying glass, and then you're stepping back, looking at it within the whole structure of and flow of the grand narrative. That, for me, is Christ-centered preaching. It's not so much doing Jesus is the better this and that and Jesus is the better this and that. Though I think there's some places you can do that. It's more of trying to identify where your passage stands in redemptive history and putting your passage in its proper place within the flow of the grand narrative. It's, it's identifying particular themes that are in your text in which you ask the question, where did this theme start first and where does it culminate? And how does that theme converge on Christ? So there's some very safe ways to do Christ-centered preaching. And a lot of people, I think, have the wrong idea about what we're talking about when we talk about Christ-centered preaching. And we could have more questions about that later uh, in due course. All right, here are some benefits of exposition. Um, <clears throat> gosh, you guys are a good crowd, man. Nine. Number one, it calls for attention to biblical doctrine. Here I have in mind, by the way, preaching through a book of the Bible and I don't think that's the only way you can do exposition, by the way. Um, again, if it's just a, a basic definition of word-driven. But what I have in mind in this list is preaching through a book, okay? Um, 
That is to say, when you're going through a book, you're going to deal with doctrines you would never have otherwise picked, unless you're really strange. Hey, do you really want to talk about that crazy passage in 1 Timothy 2 about women saved through childbearing? Um, what on earth? Uh, and you, you look at passages in Kings, and you're like, what am I going to do with that? Um, and then particular, the doctrine of hell, uh, uh, women's roles, gifts, so many controversial doctrines in the Bible. Um, and you just realize that. That's, that's your life if you're a preacher. You're dealing in controversy. That's one of the reasons it's exhausting. Right? Like nobody cares if you're talking about sports, not for long at least. But you start talking about that, you're going to get in trouble. Um, I, I was in England not long ago, and I told the guys, nobody gets mad if you talk, they're all drinking tea, of course. No one gets upset if, if you're, you're complaining about tea, you're, you're arguing about who has better tea. Right? There's no problems with that. And I was leading up to this point, and one of them said, apparently people do get upset with tea. This was on the 4th of July, by the way. Um, and uh, that, that was controversial. And, and by the way, I have my American flag socks on that I was, I was wearing on that day. Uh, my friend Sam Albury is coming in town. He's from England tonight, and so I wore these for Sam today. Um, but you get my point. Uh, you have to deal with subjects. And you know what that does is it actually edifies you. It's actually good for you. Um, and what I've found is that people who've been in the church for a long time, they've always wondered about certain things. And you don't even have to preach a really good sermon, but you just address it and they appreciate you. Um, that's, always, that's always been a, something that I've picked up from people. You're like, man, that was a horrible sermon on the future of Israel. And they're just glad you said something. They're, they're, they're glad we've talked about it. So uh, it's not always about performing perfectly, but just faithfully presenting what's in the Bible. Um, number two, exposition done well is good for both audiences. Both audiences. <clears throat> this is a real pet peeve of mine when it comes to preaching. People think that you, you can't do exposition with unbelievers. And while I believe theologically no one is going to believe the gospel apart from God's intervention, that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. That doesn't mean they can't follow a sermon. And God in his common grace has given people the capacity to, to ask questions and uh, engage. You don't have to water down a message to en engage unbelievers. You just have to assume they're present and address them intelligibly um, and to be accessible to them. And what we found uh, at IDC, because we get a number of college students, um, you know, students sometimes, I remember a gal came one time from India. She'd never even been to a Christian worship service. It was her first time ever. And we're near Cedar Point, which has a lot of internationals that have moved into the area, and we're doing a lot of work there. Uh, they, they show up at times. And what I found is they actually expect you to teach the Bible. And they're actually confused. If they show up, and you're, not, if you're doing this half-baked Hollywood sort of thing, like, what, what is this? And I just want to say to you guys, you're a church, man. Be a church. Um, you don't go to Starbucks and say, right, you should have hamburgers. It's a coffee shop. They do coffee. That's what they do. And we're a church. We do Bible. What we have to do, though, is just make it intelligible. And to, to assume people are present, that they don't always know where the books of the Bible are or, you know, the context of the passage and those sorts of things. So I think you can do engaging exposition well for both audience. You can edify and evangelize all through the sermon. All right, number three, exposition gives authority to the message. It gives authority to the message. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, 
in sermon delivery class, I, I, we were talking about these things. And um, I, when I was young, I really struggled. Why should anyone older than me listen to me? Because you know it doesn't happen in a lot of places. And here is the reason. It's because you have the Bible. Your authority is not in your age. It's in the Word. And if a 13-year-old can properly exegete a passage and preach it, then I'm under obligation under God to obey it. It's not about who's presenting it as much as it is what is being presented. That's what gives us authority. That's why they should listen to the young guy. And so we, we believe that as, as people of the Reformation, don't we? Sola Scriptura. Number four, exposition magnifies Scripture. It magnifies Scripture. I remember just being turned on to exposition, and I would hear sermons at big events, guys waving the Bible in the air, saying that the Bible's inspired and infallible and inerrant and many other I words. And, um, but they wouldn't preach it. It was something like, well, okay, I believe you. <laughs> like, okay, can we have a look at it? Um, but there's a lot of that, isn't there, where people can sign an affirmation of faith about the Bible, but you really show what you believe about the Bible by how you use the Bible. Not by what you say about it as much as what you do with it. And people see that. If you want a church that, that has a high view of Scripture, it needs to be magnified in your ministry. Number five, exposition is God-centered, not man-centered. That is, um, we, we start with, we're on his agenda. Um, exposition is sort of, we've said this before about theology, thinking God's thoughts after him. Like, if, if, again, if we believe this is God's inspired word, which it is, then we, we get to do this. We get to, to, to think God's thoughts after him. Um, number six, exposition provides a wealth of material for preaching. As long as you're preaching the Bible, you will never run out of material. As long as you're exalting Christ, you will never run out of material because he's unsearchable. Number seven, exposition edifies the person delivering the word. That's a personal benefit, isn't it? What a blessing it is to be able to do that. Number eight, exposition ensures the highest level of biblical knowledge for the congregation. It helps them to think Christianly. We have a biblically illiterate world, and so we want to change that. Number nine, a great benefit here. Exposition teaches people how to study the Bible on their own. I often say one of my goals in preaching is people walk out and they say, well, I could have gotten that. I want to be like, amen. That's what I want every day. I want you to do that. I want you on Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, I want you to be able to look at a passage, see the big idea, apply it to your life. It teaches people how to study the Bible on their own. Well, that's a bit of a refresher, a reflection here. Uh, how to prepare Christ-centered exposition. I'm not going to work through that that. Uh, five steps. That's why I gave you the, the great little picture. Uh, you can see it, but you can see the flow of, of what I do, which is basically the same sort of pattern you see in almost all expository preaching books. There's not a, anything necessarily new in that with just a few minor uh, exceptions, but overall it's, 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 it's uh, the general flow. Um, some some uh, profs and writers have used more steps and that sort of thing, but I'm, I'm a jock, so I had to keep it simple. Uh, uh, small brain. So just five, that's all I need. Um, but I thought what I would do with the sermon in Acts 17 in chapel, 
just real quick, just a couple thoughts on how I did, we'll say steps two and three, um, four, and five, maybe five. Step, step one, study the text, so I'm not going to work through that. Step two is unifying the theme. So MPT, MPS, those are the words I use. Um, main point of the text, main point of the sermon. The difference is the main point of the text is rooted in history. It's, uh, you know, looking back. You can, it doesn't have to be stated in the past tense, but it is a look back. It includes particular names and places. MPS is more of the application of that main point of the text stated in present tense for modern listeners. My MPS I stated before I prayed this morning in Acts 17 when I said by observing how Paul evangelized the influential city of Athens, we find some important lessons on how we should engage unbelievers today. So from there, I then built uh, the sermon uh, around that idea that we, these are evangelistic lessons that we can learn from Paul. Um, and that outline that I chose, that step three, um, in the book you can, you can tease all this out. Uh, you can see it all teased out. Choose an approach. In the book I give nine ways to do an outline. Um, choose your words. I usually do more present tense application points today. I, I didn't. Um, but I think there's a variety of ways you can go about doing it. Um, the main thing is step two. What is the main point of the text? What's the main point of the sermon? That's what you want to get. Um, when it comes to structuring a sermon, different homileticians and Bible teachers have different opinions. And I often say, I want to be the least opinionated preaching professor you've ever heard. I have some things that are in the closed hand that I die for and some things that are in the open hand. And I think you have room, you know, to know, to, to, um, to do your own thing in terms of knowing your context, being wise, what's best for your audience. And so I don't get too bent out of shape over a person's outline. What I really want to hear is, this is what the text is about, and, and to know what the, the main point is. Um, my outline was what Paul saw, what he felt, where he went, and what he said, which I thought flowed really well, and that's why I kind of did it like that. Um, but then at the end, I, I collected the applications again, and what I do when it comes to application, you see step four of the functional elements, is I like to do, I borrow this from Keller, running and collected application. So it's, it's application along the way. And there was some of that you heard uh, in the sermon. But then it's collected at the end. It's not new. It's just collected. And I don't like to save application just for the end of the sermon because I think people duck at the end. Uh, if you do that all the time, they know it's coming. But I like to shoot them along the way uh, so that they, they, can't, they can't escape. And then, then after they're already dead, you can collect it and baptize them, you know? So um, I like to do kind of that running and collected. Uh, again, some of that's just going to be up to you and your, your style. Um, kind of the, the, the big idea is that the Bible's preached, Jesus is exalted, text is explained clearly. Um, on the application, if you look at that application grid, I've got a lot of feedback on this uh, through the years. Nothing that I say is usually original. Um, it's been tweaked in some way, and that's the case with this grid. Uh, Michael Lawrence and Mark Dever have a book on biblical theology, and in that book, they have an application grid. They only have three categories, and so I was very disappointed by nine Mark's guys that they only had three. They need at least nine, but so I thought I would expand it beyond three, uh, and this is, this is what... Um, What's helped me through the years think about application because one of the weaknesses I think in exposition has been 
on the, the, the use of application, the doing of application. You can get exegesis in really good commentaries, though you shouldn't rely upon them, uh, but be able to do it without commentaries, uh, at least the, the bulk of your preaching. Um, but application, how do you do that? Because you can't read about how to apply the text to your church in a commentary. They can give you some ideas, maybe some starters, but uh, that, that takes wisdom and prayer. It takes a, knowing your people really well. And so um, this grid's been helpful for me in thinking about categories of application. So if you take that outline and you put it on the left-hand column, what Paul saw, what he felt, uh, where, where he went, and what he said, I don't hit every box in every point. But what I like to do is look back at my sermons over, say, a three-month period and see that I'm hitting these categories. Some of the categories are very obvious. Individual means an individual Christian. That's kind of the default mode of application. We tend to apply the, our text to individual believers. Probably the second uh, category that's most obvious is to non-Christians. Though that category is usually not touched in a lot of settings until the end of the sermon. And so I actually want to pepper it throughout this, the engagement of unbelievers uh, throughout the sermon which is very important to me, to, to, to address them in the introduction and along the way, having these various asides where they're being addressed. Um, and it's not hard to do. You just need to look at the text and say, what is it that they don't agree with? And usually it's everything. Or what is it that they, they don't like? You know, so you're talking about God's wrath, for example. And you just say, hey, if you're not a believer, you may be here and you may hate this idea of wrath. And, but then you begin to just... Think, you make them think about something. You don't have to be a great apologist because you probably won't win them over in that moment anyway. But what happens is they begin to, to see, this is a safe place I can ask my questions. Uh, this is a place where I w- this is actually interesting. Uh, he's preaching like he knows I'm present. I think it's very important. And one of the things you're doing in addressing the unbeliever during the course of your sermon is training your own people indirectly to engage lost people. And so I think it's very important to be an expository evangelist uh, as as you're you're going about your work of preaching, that's a phrase from Zach S. Wine. Okay, so let's just think about those four points and some of the things that I tried to do. Uh, unique historical is what would this have looked like in Paul's day uh, of engaging uh, the Athenians? I did that through the show of pictures um, primarily. Some sometimes, by the way, these categories lead you to illustrations. And so if you've ever wondered, like, how do I get a good illustration for a point? You may not think about illustration first. You might think about category. Because it's almost impossible to think about these categories without thinking about an illustration, right? And that's fine. That's great. You can apply through the use of illustration. Um, so uh, Jesus' life and work, I'm simply asking the question, what did this look like in the life and ministry of Jesus? And I, I didn't do that a lot in, in this particular sermon, but I did it in one place where I talked about Paul, uh, Jesus's addressing of the woman at the well and Nicodemus uh, in, a, in a different way. Uh, individual, that was throughout. Now, these, the categories I've selected, and by the way, you could select your own categories, and there could be subcategories even. These are categories that I think we're weak in at our church, and so that's why I'm pressing it. Because one of the benefits you have of preaching is not just teaching, but leading and casting vision and, and creating culture in your church. So we think, uh, what, I, what I call this is the drip method of preaching, where instead of twice a year you give a vision sermon for your church, you just drip it every week. Because if it's only twice a week, they duck again, and they wait till you get back to your regular thing. But if it's every week, they can't avoid it. 
And so some of the things we're trying to change in our church is like, or help people understand, I should say, is vocation. How does faith and work integrate? Uh, we just realized a couple years ago, we haven't, we haven't talked about this very well. A lot of businessmen sit in churches and they have never heard a, a, a something applied to their life from the text. Uh, business women. And so we want to, so the question I'm asking is, why is this text significant for that category? Does this text have anything to say? So in Acts 17, there were places where we talked about the marketplace in our workplaces, uh, in engaging believers. There wasn't a lot of time spent there. Public sphere is, are things like, how would this truth change our society? Um, what is going on in our public society? I talked about the rise of secularism, the rise of nuns, etc. A local church, I made a point here to, to talk about how people don't just wake up and come to your church. Um, that we've got to engage them outside the church. That church attendance is actually decreasing in most places. A unity and diversity, one of the things we want to see is more diversity in our church. So we look for places along the sermon. Is there a place to really address that? Acts 17 provided a great occasion, by the way, to, to talk about how from one nation or from one man came every nation. And I made a few remarks about diversity there. Next generation is a category that I really want to think through because, again, like the, the businessman and businesswoman, teenagers especially sometimes feel like big church is not for them. And I don't want them to think that. And some, we're very intentional sometimes about saying, if you're a kid, look up here for a moment. If you're a teenager, look here. I know you're listening to this and this and this, and you're, you're being taught this, this, and this. Here's, here's where they're right about something. It's a half-truth. You are a firework. <laughs> um, that, uh, that's Katy Perry, by the way. Um, I don't listen to her, but just so you know. Um, she's right in that you're special. You're made in the Imago Dei. But what Katy Perry doesn't say is that you, there's been a fall. You, and you need to Repent. That won't sell a lot of records. <laughs> they won't invite you to perform at, at the halftime at Super Bowl if you start preaching the gospel in your music. Um, so there's a, a, a sense in which I, I want to be really intentional about addressing our students. Doxological is the question, what in this text makes me want to sing? And Because preaching is also like leading people in worship, isn't it? So uh, that, that's just a, a little grid that uh, might be of help. We've had uh, small group leaders sometimes use the grid as they hear my sermon because we do sermon-based small groups. They can, they can then think through the categories. Um, so I give you that uh, to ponder. All right, last piece, how to preach through Acts. Here are some recommendations. No expert on this, but just some recommendations having preached through it. The first thing I would talk about would be some prayers for your sermon series. Because we're not just preaching, right? We want to see God do something in our church. And Acts is a great one to, to just really, really pray for God to, to send an awakening. So here were four prayers that I had. One, renew our devotion to the church. Renew our, the, these, these are themes that I'm calling prayers in Acts. Devotion to the church. I think one of the biggest weaknesses in contemporary discipleship is the lack of teaching on ecclesiology. Um, there's just a lot of individualism in people's Christianity. And so one of my mentors in years past said, once a year I do a series on the church because I believe it to be a weakness. Well, Acts gives you a great opportunity, doesn't it, to teach on the church. Acts 2.42 and following the great vision of the early Christians gathered. But not just 
you know, the church gathered. But one of the things that's so refreshing and encouraging about the book of Acts is the emphasis on relationships in, in the church. Paul wasn't a one-man band, was he? He was sent out by a church. He reported back to a church. He's with Barnabas, Titus, Silas, Luke, Priscilla, Aquila, Lydia, the Ephesian elders. He swam in friends, traveled with them, stayed with them, visited with them, worked alongside, sometimes even got beaten alongside them. He, he disagreed with them, and he reconciled with them. And that's just refreshing to see the kind of emphasis on community in this book. So I think you want to you pray for that as you preach it. Acts chapter 20, you get the picture of the, the church gathered in what seems to be the now normal pattern once a week. That's Paul at Troas in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where we see them gathering to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, to take the Lord's Supper, and to hear the Lord's word. Acts 20 then gives us a great vision of pastoral ministry as Paul addresses the Ephesian elders. So I would just pray that Lord renew our vision for the church. Secondly, to renew our devotion to prayer and reliance on the Holy Spirit. And if there's a book that could rekindle a person's prayer life, I think Acts would, would be at the top of the list. David Peterson in his great commentary says, It is striking that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of Acts, we find a mention of prayer. Almost every turning point. So, chapter 1, verse 14, upper room, waiting on the Spirit, praying. Acts chapter 1, 24 and 25, replacing Judas, praying. Acts chapter 2, as they're gathered together, first church, praying. Acts 4, after the first persecution, praying. Acts chapter 6, they don't want to neglect the widows. They need to appoint some, some folks to care for them. What do they do? They pray. Acts 12, Jerusalem church, Peter gets arrested, James gets beheaded, praying. Praying for Peter. Peter gets out. What's he find them doing? Praying. God answered their prayer, and they didn't believe it. <laughs> they wouldn't let Peter in. It was a great story, isn't it? Uh, Acts 13, they send out first missionary journey through prayer. Acts 14, Paul establishes elders in the churches. Says he laid hands, he prayed for them. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison praying and singing hymns to God. Acts 20, after he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, they weep and they pray. Acts 21.5, at Tyre, before he goes to Jerusalem, Paul knelt down with the believers and he prayed. All the way through the book of Acts. Because that's what we do in our Christian life. This book can create a hunger for awakening. For revival. The kind of thing you, know, you see in Acts 19. Where they're burning their magic books. Coming to faith in Christ. And as we read these passages, we say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. So that'd be another prayer. Number three, that the Lord renew our zeal for preaching Christ. As I mentioned, so many passages in the book of Acts are about sermons and showing people the grand narrative of Scripture. Number four, and very obviously, renew our commitment to global evangelism and church planting. John Stott has one of the best commentaries, in my opinion, for preaching on the, on the book of Acts. And he says, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. You see this all the way through Acts as the, as the gospel is 
going and working out that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth pattern. Luke gives us at least ten summary statements of the growth of the church throughout that book. 3,000, 5,000. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And it multiplied on and on and on. So that's really, really a prayer that the Lord would do that in our churches. That he would make us an Antioch church. What a great model in the book of Acts. With that, that diverse <clears throat> leadership team committed to evangelism, committed to mercy. They send missionaries, church planters. You see the origin of so many churches than we read about in the New Testament, don't we? You see how Philippi got started. As Paul's there with Lydia, and then there's the tormented girl, and then the jailer, one of my favorite stories, who comes out after Paul and Silas prayed and sang so much that God sent an earthquake. And he says, what must I do to be saved? The Thessalonica church we later read about. Ephesians, Paul's in there in Acts 19. Colossians got started, it seems, because Epaphras was in Ephesus and took the gospel back and started the church in Colossae. Like it's just church planning is in the air of book of Acts. Mission is in the air. And so if you, if you want to cultivate that kind of spirit, that kind of devotion to it, evangelism and church planning, I know you all do, but, and we can't preach Acts alone. We've got to preach other books of the Bible. But I'm just saying, if, if you have this, this sense of we need to first, we want to plant some churches. We, our church has never planned the churches. Where do I start? I would teach through the book of Acts. Our church is horrible in evangelism. We've got a bunch of consumers. Blah, 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 blah. We preach through the book of Acts. We don't pray enough, and let's get into the book of Acts. Those would be some reasons that may lead you into it. Great quote from Michael Green. I'm out of time, so you can read it uh, for your own quiet time. Um, studying Acts with a right heart. Next section. I just give three, three ways that a person would read history, because Acts is a historical book. But it's not just about the history of the church, it's about the history of the mission of the church. And so, who is it that, that reads history? Well, I would break it down in three categories. Scholars, admirers, and soldiers. And the way we want people to read Acts is not, first of all, like scholars. Now, this is not a diss on scholars, we're among them. But there are scholars who are also soldiers. And there are scholars who are cold and detached. And that's not what we're doing when we're studying Acts. We're not just looking at dates and places, are we, and names. We're not just reading it as, as just generic history. Nor are we, second category, reading it like admirers, casual admirers. You know, some people read history, like Civil War history, just as a hobby. They may even collect some guns from the Civil War. Or maybe people are into baseball history, and they collect a lot of memorabilia. But that's not how we're reading the book of Acts, as someone who just admires it. We're not studying Acts as gun collectors, but as soldiers. That's the third category. That is to say, we want to become better soldiers. Because Acts doesn't end. It didn't end in Acts 28. I mean, it ended in canonical scripture. But the abrupt ending at Acts is by design, I think. We are Acts 29, Acts 30, Acts 31, Acts 32, and so on. This mission just keeps going. So we're, we are not just standing over the book of Acts and looking at history. Sometimes people have said, how old is your church? And I like to say, about 2,000 years old. 
That's how old we are. Because this is my history. This is your history. These are our people. We started here. What an exciting thing to think about that we are on, we are with them. We're, we're continuing this history until we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church himself. And so we're looking at it because we want to be better soldiers. We're in the game. This is, this is our group. Some considerations in preaching through Acts. Number one, this is very obvious, study <laughs> the book of Acts before you preach through it. Just a few practical ideas here. Um, we try to plan our series. This is just what we do. It's not a law by any stretch. Um, we plan our series about a year in advance. We do that normally at our, our retreat that we, we go on. And then as, after we select what we're going to preach through, I begin to study it immediately. I order my, my books that I want to get, that I know to get. I ask people what books to get. I'll start outlining um, at least how many sermons I want to do. I don't outline the actual sermons, but just dividing it up. Um, when you're reading the book of Acts, I think there's some things you have to keep in mind. You read it in view of Luke's previous book, because this is part two of Luke, as Luke says in uh, the opening verses of Acts. You have to read Acts in light of its genre. It is a historical book. And as we often say, narratives are not always normative. That, that Luke is not always prescribing things. He's always describing things. He's simply telling us what happened. So we have to be very careful about making one-to-one correlations in the book of Acts in our days. Otherwise, we might recommend a handkerchief ministry uh, to people. (laughs) That would be an example, right, as people are being healed by Paul's handkerchiefs. That if you don't realize, he's describing. He's not necessarily prescribing. That's why we have the whole Bible, to make sure our applications are on point. To make sure we're not doing and demanding crazy things of people. Um, There are many things to apply in the book of Acts, to be sure. And I've mentioned the main things uh, pretty much in terms of preaching and evangelism and prayer and so on. Um, Number number three, under reading. You have to read it in light of the epistles. And then number four, read it in light of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is throughout the book of Acts. I mean, think about the themes in Acts that have their... Have a, have a prophecy or its origin there, like Pentecost. You can't, you can't talk about it without going back in the Old Testament. The suffering servant, the temple, judgment, dispersion, Messiah, and so on. And then you have to read it in light of its structure, that it's, it's really working out Acts 1.8. Now, number two there, I say gather your resources. Yeah, that's a long list, but I went long rather than short. Um, I could give you some of my favorites, but those were ones I actually used uh, in the series. Number three, consider your context as you plan your series. Your context. I would just say a word about pastoral preaching is don't, don't copy someone else because your context is different. Now, what I say that, I mean, you might be in a context where you want to go longer than I went. You might be in a situation where you want to do part of Acts. You want to do half acts, take a break, do something else. Like you really know your people well um, and don't feel like you, you need to do what one of your heroes has done. Um, that's why the Lord has given you to be their pastor. And Matt Chandler's not their pastor. You are. So be thinking about that. Um, number four, work through some difficult passages before the series starts. There are some difficulties in Acts, right? 
What about these events at Pentecost? What are you going to say about that? I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. Um, what about the role of prophecy? What about those prophesying daughters in Acts, uh, toward the end of Acts? It's very interesting, isn't it? Should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? There's some who say he didn't. He shouldn't have. That Paul, was, Paul was rebellious. I think that's, well, I won't go there. Um, I may get critiqued later. Number five, work to integrate your sermon series with your corporate worship experience and with your small group ministries. This is, these are recommendations, okay? We work really hard. I turn my, my sermon in usually on uh, Tuesday. I, I, I do eight hours on Monday, and I do uh, as much as I can on Tuesday. I'll then tweak and edit the rest of the week, but I send it off to about a dozen people uh, by Tuesday afternoon. And one of the persons who get it is our worship pastor, and we, we, uh, we meet on Wednesdays as staff. And so Donnie has worked through the sermon uh, and uh, often gives good feedback. And sometimes I'll add a few things after we talk about it as pastors. Um, but just integrating it, that'll help him select songs, our corporate reading for the day. Because I'm also super passionate about corporate worship and not just preaching. Because um, I don't view, you know, preaching, the, the church is my preaching dome where I just sort of show up and do my thing. But I get to lead worship get to plan worship, and that's exciting. I put down the way we preached uh, through the book of Acts, again, just the way we did it. Um, that's longer than I like to do a series. We've made two or three exceptions along the way at our church. I like to go about a semester. I like to work in a semester calendar, usually. We normally go through a book of the Bible. Every, every, normally we go from one genre to the next. So if I'm in the New Testament, I'll probably do something out of the Old Testament in the next uh, series in between. We normally do a four or five week or something like that series on something we think we need to address as a church. So those are the types of places where I'll do um, some thematic kind of preaching, um, that sort of thing. So if you want to emphasize community or membership or whatever your thing is, we kind of try to do that in between uh, the various sermon series. But we did go longer in Acts and we're going longer now in John and we let, went longer in Romans. But I thought that was okay uh, in those books um, because of their significance. So you guys have been a great uh, group of students. The great thing about today is you get to be in the class and there's no grades, right? Everybody, everybody gets an A. You guys got an A today, so congratulate yourself. Well done.